the, with the woman with the issue of blood who um, uh, grabbed Jesus' garment and he perceived that power had left him. And then um, the little daughter who was sick, who he said, now she's just asleep. But he said when she was his little girl, get up. He said, now don't tell anybody. Remember that story? He said, don't tell anybody about this. But in this instant, he said, but to him, go to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord hath done for you and that he has had compassion or mercy on you. And he departed and began to proclaim um, in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. God is personal. Um, God knows the stories that we have. He knows if he is or is not going to get glory from your story. And when God has done something for you, and God discerns in your spirit that, that, that he knows that you recognize that he has done this and that there is no other way for that to be accomplished, he wants you to tell people. He wants you to go and to tell others of the mercy and of the compassion that God had on you. And when that happens, people marvel at that. And I think one reason that they marvel is because they can relate to the frailty of our human existence. They can relate to our testimony of weakness. They can relate to that. They're marveling because if Jesus did it for them, it was nothing he did. If Jesus did it for them, certainly he could do it for me. And that's encouraging. Amen? So listen, I want to talk about Lazarus. I, do, I, did not, and I did not title this message tonight. I don't know what it's going to be called. Um, I have maybe a little bit of an idea, but I'm going to see what God does over the next few minutes. Um, so you can at least give it a title on the website, because I didn't really know what to call it. It's a very simple message this evening. If you would turn to John 11 and just kind of hang there. Uh, and, and like maybe verse 32, just kind of start there. I'm going to be going over a couple of verses there. Now we're talking about Lazarus, and everybody knows this story. Um, it says, Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him. Now this is already after Lazarus had died. Okay? And when he got in, I'm sorry, then Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him and fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother would have not died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled and said, where have ye laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. And then the shortest verse in the Bible, John 11:35, says, Jesus wept. And this is, this is one of the few scenes in the Bible where we see this, almost this inner weeping of Jesus. Um, this sadness from our Lord. It must have been um, maybe even a pretty obvious groaning to those around him or um, this inner troubling of the Son of God, the heart. Lazarus was his friend. And he started to kind of have these inner groanings. Lazarus had been dead for four days. So they checked him. They checked his pulse. We all know where the story goes, but I want you to hear the significance of this. They checked his pulse. They started to um, uh, put spices 
in and around him. They started to wrap him. He was almost to the embalming stage. He was dead to the point where he smelled bad. So it wasn't like he was just taking a nap, sleeping or in a coma. He was dead and he had been dead. So you gotta kind of got to keep in mind that these um, Mary and Martha were people who knew Jesus. They loved Jesus and kind of put yourself in, in their shoes. Um, they were sisters of Lazarus. Jesus had visited their home. He had sat at their table and had clearly spoken to them about the things of, of who he was and his kingdom. Yet when it came time to believe that he could do something outside of, of this realm of human possibility, they, they couldn't bring themselves to agree with Jesus. And that's why he had this inner groaning. So think about yourself, because I think that New Hope Church and the church of this country might be in some type of Lazarus state. Um, But this is, it's going to get good tonight. So if you think about this, they couldn't bring themselves to agree with it. And we've talked about this before. It's so easy to believe for other people, but it's really difficult to believe for yourself. But when God does something in you and through you and to you and maybe for you, or you finally realize that what has been or what is dead can live, then you have a testimony, a story, one that which offers hope, strength, and encouragement to others. But usually it takes an awakening of your own to be able to kind of talk to others about that, to encourage them. So, kind of witnessing Jesus, seeing their unbelief, seeing their weeping, um, he actually, the scripture says he, he groaned. There was a groaning. He groaned in the spirit. And when they brought him to where Lazarus was, he began to weep. And, and I don't think that it was just because of you know, Lazarus being his friend, or, you know, a lot of people will say it was because Jesus was weeping because of everybody else's unbelief and what he was capable of doing. They didn't believe it, but maybe because this, this was uh, an indicator of what the whole future of mankind was going to look like. The church, doubting, unbelieving, not believing Jesus' words and what he says. So I think that maybe Jesus was even weeping because he he caught a glimpse into what the whole future of mankind was going to look like. Maybe he saw every person, every family, every instance where his his people would simply not believe that he is able to bring life out of death. I think maybe he saw that. And it saddened him because he knew why he came to the earth. He knew what this was a picture of. So before Jesus' encounter with Mary and Martha had gone out to meet him, saying in John eleven twenty one and 22, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, whatever you ask of God, he will give it to you. So this is, this is a pretty amazing statement of faith. But it would be like us saying, you know, with God all things are possible. And genuinely believing that. 
But my question is for right now or for later on, like she did. She just kind of relegated that to the future. Does that make sense? Now, I know you're God and you can do whatever you want. You, you came just a little bit too late. Nevertheless, you know, you could do whatever you want if we ask in your name. But there was some, there was some doubt there. And Jesus responds saying in John eleven twenty three, 23, he says, thy brother will rise again. Your brother will rise again. So you notice that Martha immediately puts that off in the future when she says in John eleven twenty four, 24, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She's not even thinking right now. And this, I'm telling you, this is what is going on in the church right now. Because we are coming to church and we are worshiping while we're in bondage. We are worshiping while we are just hoping that someday in the future, yeah, there'll be a miracle, but that's, that's later. That's not for right now. And you're misunderstanding what Jesus is saying. She simply cannot believe it for the present moment. It's the type of us or a believer that says, well, I believe Jesus is coming again one day. And I believe that the trumpet's going to sound and the dead in Christ are going to rise first, like Thessalonians says, and that we who are alive and will remain be gathered together and be caught up in the Lord with the air and meet him in the clouds and all that. Yeah, that'll happen. But it's, we're talking in the future. We're not, we're not talking about right now because it's really difficult some, for some reason to believe for the present moment that you're in, that we're in. So as Isaiah said, that, that all the tears will be wiped away from every eye, that there will be no more sorrow, no more sighing. And, well, I believe, and we believe that, but not for today, that it's coming in the future. So Martha kind of puts it off into the future. In John eleven twenty five, 25, excuse me, in 26, he says, Jesus says, he's trying to make this as plain as he can. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live, and whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. So Jesus was talking about a couple of things. Those who have already come to a place of hopelessness that will be brought to life again. And those who continue to believe and walk with Christ will not suffer any kind of spiritual death, but will live with God for all eternity. Like when we get saved, that life starts that moment. Eternal life starts the moment we give our life to Jesus Christ. We repent of our sins and, and he comes and he lives in us and he reigns in us. It starts that moment, not after we die and eternal life starts spiritually. It starts now in the natural. And in other words, they'll, they'll partake of this. We, we partake of a supernatural life now. Amen. That begins now. Amen. So he ends with this question. He says in the scripture, do you believe this? And, and Martha responds in 1127. She says, yes, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the son of God, which should come into the world. She's still not answering the question. And we have a problem with this in the church. We're throwing off freedom. We're throwing off deliverance. We're throwing off um, um, being um being freed from captivity and bondage till later, sometime in the future. Think about it. Every time we come to church, you maybe deal with a certain struggle, the weakness of our, the frailty of our humanity, things we struggle with. 
But we always relegate it to the future. Next week might be my Sunday. Do we not do that? And when we don't have a satisfactory devotional time, quiet time, prayer time, whatever we call it, we'll say, maybe tomorrow. We're not willing to accept what he is speaking into our lives in the moment. And we need to learn how to do this by faith as a church. So he ends with the question, do you believe this? Yeah, I believe it, but she quotes some other scripture. How often do you and I come back at God with scripture even that has nothing to do with what he's trying to speak to our lives? So she's basically quoting scripture back at Jesus. It was not related to what he was speaking about. She just cannot bring herself to agree with what he is saying to her. And I, I, I want to present to you the possibility that this is the dilemma of the church. This is the dilemma of all the ages. People in the church not believing what God is speaking to them in the moment. But something can happen and he can bring life from death right now. God speaks, we agree, but only to a certain point. He starts speaking about things that we have put in the grave. We've put it in a grave because we haven't seen it come to pass. So it's in a grave. It's buried. It's wrapped. It has spices. It's mummified. It's dead. We've put it there. We don't want to discuss it. We don't want to talk about it. Things that we maybe have long ago buried, things that we've given up on, a tendency to do what Mary and Martha did. We, we weep and we, we cry at his feet. When he went out, she was crying at his feet. Or we quote scripture that has nothing to do with what he's trying to tell us. And it, if we're, maybe even seems like we're attempting to convince God as well of ourselves that our faith is intact, we're good, but we're not letting him in. We're not really letting him in to bring back to life something that is dead or a dead area or a struggle. Um, I, wanna, I, I found this in 2 Kings. I, I want to show this to you. So it's kind of personal for me. I don't know how. I just feel like God is um, wanting to give you hope through this scripture. And you'll see what I mean. The book Second Kings, it tells the story of a woman who kind of had a similar response and an incredible promise was spoken to her. Um, this was the Shunammite woman. If you remember the Shunammite woman, she lived in Shunamm, and her husband um, had made a room in their house for the prophet Elijah to stay in whenever he was in the area. And one day Elisha said to his servant, go ask the Shunammite woman what we can do for her. So it was kind of like a, you know, you've let us stay here. We want to pay you back. We, wanna, we want to help you because you have helped us. Go get this Shunammite woman and see what we can do for her. Can we speak to the king on her behalf? You know, what does she want done? We want to help this woman. Her response to, to their offer was in 2 Kings 4.13. And she said, I dwell among mine own people. I, I dwell among my own people. She was basically saying, it is what it is. She's being nice and compassionate, courteous and hospitable towards her, these guests in the vicinity. But she's saying after, well, what can we do for you? She said, well, I dwell among my own people. It is what it is. I've made the best of a bad situation. I've found comfort where I could. 
But deep down in this woman's heart, she had the knowledge, she knew that she was childless and she was likely already past the age of childbearing. So Elisha called her to come in and told her in 2 Kings 4.16, he says to this woman, about this season, according to the time of life, thou shalt embrace a son. And I looked that up and that translates into about this season according to, according to the time of life. In other words, the gestational period for a woman. Nine months, you will embrace a son. And he's telling her this. And the Shunammite woman stood there in the doorway. She couldn't get herself to say, just like Mary and Martha couldn't get themselves to believe the word of the Lord. She stands in the doorway. She couldn't get herself to like praise God or this is true and I believe it. But she actually um, knew this man was a prophet of God. And all that she could say was in 2 Kings 4.16. Nay, my Lord, thou man of God, do not lie to thine handmaid. Don't you lie to me. Don't tell me things that can't be. Think about your life. Think about the impossible that you're believing for. Think about something that you've long and buried a long time ago. Don't tell me things that can't be. Don't you get my hopes up. I've already buried that hope. I have found comfort maybe in my job or in the little family that I do have or even comfort in having you in my house as a guest maybe, she said to him. So don't you lie to me. Can you picture that conversation and the struggle for decades and decades and decades that this woman has had and now someone's coming along saying nine months from now you're going to have a son? Don't start telling me things which are impossible. Don't start telling me these things. Don't put false hope in my heart. Have you ever felt like that? That was all she could utter. So like Martha and the Shunammite woman we welcome Jesus into our heart, into our home. We have him at our table. We say grace before we have dinner. We open the word. We read it. We spend time with him, maybe. See, we don't have a problem with any of those things until he starts to begin to speak to us about the things that we have put away forever and out of reach. Then he starts to speak into our lives. And maybe even as you're listening to me this evening, certain things are beginning to come to your mind. Things that you have buried. Things that you have put in the grave. You've given up on them. They're dead and gone. And like Lazarus, they've been in the grave so long that they stink. You try not to think about them. But for somehow they just keep creeping their way up to the front of your mind and they cross your mind and then sometimes you'll dwell on them and then sometimes you'll even quote scripture back at God or just read something else or do something to take your mind off of it. Church, new hope. Church, God wants to bring freedom from these things. He wants to bring you out of these things. You understand there is a lot of knowledge that we can possess about God, but there is a lot of power that we don't have. This is how the power of God will rest in your life is believing what he says. 
not just having a knowledge, but believing by faith. God will start to demonstrate His power in your life. But we have to believe what He says. So all the while, we have no problem quoting these scriptures at Jesus, at Him. We don't truly believe that He can bring back to life what we have considered dead. We don't actually believe that all things are possible to Him or that Christ is a very present help in our time of trouble. Amen? That He can bring life in our barrenness. Even though we read in in the Scriptures time and again how He chooses the weak and the nobodies and the nothings, we simply cannot bring ourselves to believe it. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, 26 and 27, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. But we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is in the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. That's pretty amazing. So even things that I am not willing to pray about anymore, God even knows and can translate my groans. Because the Spirit makes intercession for my groanings even. And knows what those prayer requests are without me saying a word. It could just be, oh, 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 God, God. And he knows exactly what you're praying for. Even if you are not willing to utter and mumble clear English and ask God for something you've already put away, he puts groanings in you for those things. Because he knows the deep desires of our heart. And maybe your desire tonight is to just simply be free. Free. Something happens when a prayer becomes a cry. And I'm not talking about belting out a loud noise, but a, a cry in the depths of your heart. When it becomes a cry and You know, people are wanting to be free from struggles and they've gone to church forever and they can't seem to put this away because we just have made peace with whatever it is that we struggle with, hoping that we can still get into heaven and quote Scripture back to God and not really respond to what God is speaking to us. There are certain things that we should be praying for, but we... We don't. The Holy Spirit intercedes within us and groanings that cannot be uttered. It is not that God cannot utter them. We just have a hard time speaking them. John eleven twenty five says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. See, he was talking about somebody actually um, raising somebody from the dead, giving life where life cannot be found outside of a human effort. And I believe that the Lord is longing New Hope Church to raise us from all the sin and death and decay that once held us captive. Our lives were meant to be a testimony in this earth, evidence of the reality of God. But if we can't bring ourselves, even ourselves, churchgoers, believers, to agree with the groanings of the Spirit within us. So what are the groanings inside of you? 
What are your groanings? What are your deepest desires that God would break chains and shackles? So we're not willing to say them. How many of there are you? A legion. There were at least two legions. Let's just be honest with God and say, I'm a mess, but I will worship you while I'm a mess. You understand he came, he was running towards Jesus with a couple of legions of demons inside of him, running, falling down and worshiping God. He was worshiping Jesus while he was all in a mess. While he was in a mess. You understand that the voice of God when he said, Lazarus, come forth. That voice went to Lazarus's ears. And you understand that Lazarus, you know, um, was in a cave with a stone. They had to roll the stone away. You know, what stone needs to be rolled away from your situation? What are your stones? What are your grave clothes? You know, back in, in that time, there their caves. Now, caves aren't graves. People go to caves to hide. They go, so when I'm yelling, there's echoes in caves. So Jesus' voice has to get past all of these things, echoes bouncing off the walls, and try to still make it right to Lazarus' ears. And Lazarus hears the voice of the Lord, and Lazarus now has to respond. Because sometimes I believe that Jesus will call us, and we hear him calling us, but we think that's it. God has called me. And then we just wait for God to do the rest. But you see, Lazarus in that day in the tombs, there were steps that went down, chiseled out of rock. So Lazarus, he said, he told Lazarus to come forth. Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus, even in his grave clothes, even in all the bandages and and the linen that wrapped him up everywhere, he still had to make a decision to hear the voice of the Lord and to respond to it and to start to get up out of four days of being dead. He stunk and he had to walk towards Jesus in mummy clothes as he was walking, walking still wrapped up in whatever defined him in his past, and he's walking towards Jesus. Still making a decision to walk towards the king. While being wrapped up and being defined in everything that was in his past that defined him, that held him captive, and he still made a decision to worship God in his mess. Can you picture that day? Four days dead walking out in his linen wrapped like a mummy. Talk about the walking dead. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine when the dead in Christ are going to rise first? Can you imagine and picture this? This is, to me, the church of our country right now. We are almost to the embalming stage. We have spices on. We've been wrapped in linens because they have counted us out. Especially, I'm talking to the the church. So I want to encourage you tonight. Tonight's message, let's call it uh, worshiping in in your grave clothes. That's what it is, Mike. Worshiping in our, our grave clothes. While you are wrapped, worshiping in your mess, 
being possessed with a couple of legions of demons, 2,000, and running to the Son of God to worship Him while you're possessed. God needs to overthrow some things. You know, the pigs actually represented back back then trade and commerce and business and wealth, and 2,000 of them ran. We need to run all that stuff over the sea tonight, down into the sea. All the worldly things that have gripped us, everything that we're trying to make prosper in our own strength with our own lives. And we need to just fall at Jesus' feet and worship him in our mess and expect and believe and respond to what God is really speaking to us in our situation. I don't know about you all, but I am sick of, and I know that it's a sacrifice, but I'm sick of not experiencing what God has for me now. Now, today, this life, I'm telling you, if we keep living the way we're living, you're not going to make an impact for God. And before you know it, you're going to be 67. You might be in your teens now, but before you know it, you're going to be a grandfather or grandmother. And you're going to wonder, I wonder what God had for me as we just quoted scripture back to him that had nothing to do what he was telling us to do and to come out of. Worship in your grave clothes tonight. Listen to the voice of the Lord calling you out of something that you have dead, that is dead and has been buried for so long. Something that you have counted out. I'm telling you, the Lord is willing to raise us from all the sin, the death, the decay. He wants to do it. We have to bring ourselves to agree with the groanings of the Spirit within us. What are those things? The groaning of God that we would believe and embrace His plan to give us a supernatural life. And then we'll do what Martha did. Fill our lives, and we, this is what we do. We fill our lives with clang and clutter and, and, and religiosity, and, and we'll be, um, we, 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 get, we fill ourselves with the natural that we're so devoid of the supernatural. God, help us. Have mercy on us. This is, this is a, a great night. We, we, we take our whole lives to, to mess ourselves up. And in an instant, God can just say, come out of him. I mean, just a, just a word. All I need is a word from God, and I'll be okay. Now, serving in the church isn't wrong, but it can't take the place of the living word of God. You know, you can even like imagine Martha. And we encourage the youth to even do this too. Put scriptures up. We bind them around our neck and hang them on our heart and all these different things. And we want to see scriptures. Put scriptures up in the bathroom when you're getting ready in the morning. Put post-its up. Make sure that you're meditating day and night on the word of God. And you can picture maybe Martha banging around and working in the kitchen and, um, you know, quoting some of the text of the Old Testament and opening um, her Bible up and memorizing the scriptures and, but she's not even believing the scripture she's memorizing. Is that, is that where we are? So all she can do in that moment in Luke 10, 38 and 40 is come out and accuse Mary of being lazy for sitting at the feet of Jesus. I mean, this is a powerless, passionless. It's pitiful, really. It's a pitiful existence. But that simply is the result when all we do is accumulate knowledge without 
power. We need the power of God back in the church. We need to invite God tonight to come inside of us and to cleanse the temple, if you will. And as soon as we do that, God will start to move. Maybe it'll start tonight. Maybe it'll start tomorrow morning. I mean, for, for, for those of us who have been battling something for 5, 10, 15 years, it's, it's time to put it away. It's time to put it away. Deal with sin. Christ is coming back. Christ is returning. Christ is returning. He's returning. He's returning. New hope. I'm going to ask you to, to stand this evening. We're going to give God a little bit of altar time tonight. So Paul describes this as the dilemma, kind of those who profess to know God in the last days, if you remember 2 Timothy 3, 5, ever learning but never coming to the knowledge of the truth and having a form of godliness but denying its power. It's the same thing. It's the same thing just back in the Old Testament. They're unable to say, Lord, this is impossible or Nevertheless, you said it, it's going to happen. We can quote these scriptures back, but we don't believe it. We don't really believe that God can do what he said he is going to do in my life. So we've went ahead and just said, yeah, maybe someday in the future, and we've buried it. I believe that God can can take spiritual bankruptcy, spiritual barrenness, and, and do something in your life that will bring glory to his name. Amen? So let's just trust God tonight. I remember, I think it might have been the old Welsh revival, one of the biggest revivals that had happened. And this young evangelist, this minister who God was using at the time, um, they were all waiting for him to come out and preach because it had been a successful um, several-day revival. And they were waiting for him to come out. There was praying going on, and they were waiting to hear what God had to say through this young uh, man. And he he sat there and sat there and sat there and a couple of hours went by and they just waited and waited, thousands of people. And he walked up, it got quiet. This is like early 1900s. He walked up and he got everyone got quiet. And he said, this is, he said two words. And, and maybe some of you know this. He said, obey God. That's all he said. He preached two words that night, obey God. And the altars were flooded with people repenting because this is how it is in church. Everybody already knows their weakness, their struggle, what they need to do, the steps they need to take, a broken and contrite spirit, humility. And it's like God just moved on that those people because they knew what to do. And he just said, obey him, obey him. And God will move on your life. He will. Let's start playing that first song. Take these lights down. And I don't have anything else to to add or say. Let's just see what God does. We love you, Lord.